everyone. Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd, and it is time for another edition of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast where we give you the best reviews and think piece segments from the Fantano channel in audio form, convenient podcast, auditory format uh, to you uh, every week. In this edition, we have some reviews of the brand new 21 Savage record. The Georgia rapper is back with a very minimal and dark new record that is pretty pleasurable. Uh, Big Crit comes through with a compilation of the three EPs that he dropped late last year. My opinion on that may surprise you. Also taking on Latin Trap Phenom Bad Bunny's new album, uh, which just dropped as well. I'm also going to be taking on a pretty great new jazz record that dropped in November of 2018. It slipped by me, but it is a really colorful fusion of pop and soul and R&B and a little bit of hip-hop as well. It's the newest record from Marquee Hill and his band Modern Flows Volume 2. I also have a track review of the brand new collaborative cut between Travis Scott, Metro Boomin, and James Blake of all people, and a few Think PC videos where I reviewed some criticism given to me by uh, the dean of rock critics himself, Mr. Robert Christgau. Also going to be talking at length about whether or not the death of rock music is good for the genre and Jay-Z's eerie silence surrounding the misdeeds of Mr. R. Kelly that have been revealed in the recent Surviving R. Kelly series. So that is going to be this episode of the Needle Drop podcast. Make sure to give us a like or a rating or a positive review on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on. And uh, enjoy the series, enjoy the segments, enjoy the show. And it's time for a review of the new 21 Savage record, I Am Greater Than I Was. This is the new full-length LP from George Rapper, 21 Savage. He dropped it at the tail end of last year, and I am just now getting able to get to it. In 2018, hip-hop was louder than ever with aggressive scream deliveries, bombastic beats with massive bass. But it's one of the softest voices in the genre over the past few years that has miraculously cut through all the noise, and that is 21 Savage. I mean, as he says on this album, I don't gotta talk loud, bet you hear me though. This dude's nearly monotone and very low-key flows started turning heads a few years ago, especially when he broke through off of his collaborative record with Metro Boom and Savage Mode. Now, there were some things I could appreciate about the album, like its cold-blooded demeanor and how minimal it was, too. But for the most part, Savage Mode, in my opinion, is so stripped back and so one-dimensional it borders on parody. At the time, I thought it was the kind of thing that would just disappear in a year or so or just have one or two hot singles and then vaporize. But 21 Savage has arguably come into his own more and more since the release of that project. For all of its flaws, his Issa album did see him trying to change things up with some hardcore and pop rap blends, even like a seven-minute freestyle at the very end of the record. And his surprise 2017 collaboration with Metro Boomin and Offset Without Warning was a pretty eerie listen, with its frigid beats and its catchy choruses and horror movie vibe. So it's become increasingly clear that 21 Savage's flow, his style, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. Especially if he keeps dropping records like this. I Am Greater Than I Was from a title standpoint is a pretty bold statement to hit fans with right out of the gate. As before you've heard this album, Savage himself has already made an assessment on his growth, 
on his artistry, also on himself as a person, but ultimately I think he's pretty much saying here, this is my best record so far. And I can't deny that there are improvements on this record. 21 is definitely more expressive on this record than I think he's been in the past. Whether it be his forlorn demeanor on the song A Lot, which is legitimately moody, or his murderous bars on the song Good Day, there are also some rare moments on this record where he'll break into some whisper raps, into like an auto-tuned raspy falsetto. But overall, I think one of the biggest changes 21 presents on this record is an emotional one. As it seems like on this album, he's not afraid to be himself, reveal his intentions to be better to his own kids than his father was to him. The track Ball Without You sees 21 kind of in his feelings over an old relationship where it's over and it's kind of bittersweet because he has to go on without this person and sort of enjoy all the success that he's seeing alone. There's also a very sentimental auto-tuned diatribe about love and hate and loyalty in the midst of the song too. I also admire 21 for wearing his heart on his sleeve in the way that he does on the song Letter to My Mama, which is a beautiful tribute to his mom for supporting him and being behind him and getting him to where he is today and pushing him to be a better person. And there's some really endearing details laced into the lyrics of this track too, whether it be the van that she drove, the PlayStation games that she got him, or just the school hearings that she showed up for. The emotional tone of the song is great. I like the instrumental a lot, even though it is very simple. The serene electric piano chords are a nice touch, almost reminds me of like a old school hip hop throwback to LL Cool J's I Need Love in a way. Now, even though there are a lot of cuts on here where 21 is essentially in his feelings, there are some really grim tracks on this thing too, like the lethal closer for L and to mention one more time the track Good Day, whose sentiment in a way reminded me of that Ice Cube hit It Was a Good Day, except way darker and nastier. And even though of course 21 Savage is pretty violent on this record, he does add a bit more levity to his bars for a a bit of a comedic effect. Whether he's threatening you and your dog and your goldfish, or dropping a hilarious follow-up to his viral 12-car garage line where he says he has six cars, why do you have a 12-car garage? And now his answer on this record over here is that he got six more cars. Also lines on this thing like, AK make your brother do the limbo. Make this Glock shiggy challenge out the window. Yeah, there are a lot of references on this thing to shooting people, gang violence, drive-bys. All really nasty, adult, cold-blooded shit. He's also rapping about people betraying him, snitches, rats, drug dealing, money, women, materialism, 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 but at least he's balancing that out a little bit more on this record over here with some personal tracks, where he does seem to get a bit more emotional and introspective, and it becomes clear that a lot of what he's saying on the more braggadocious tracks is, you know, just kind of for the hype of it. Generally, it seems like there's more of a focus on this LP to really make the choruses pop, especially on tracks like All My Friends and 1.5. There's a pretty impressive mix of features on this thing too, from rappers that you wouldn't necessarily expect to cross over into the land of 21 Savage like J. Cole and Childish Gambino and even Schoolboy Q. Memphis legend Project Pat is also on this record as well. And to keep things current and relevant, of course, Offset is on here, Post Malone is on here, kind of paying it back for the incredible feature that 21 Savage laid onto the hit song Rockstar. Young Miami of the duo City Girls also appears on the track A&T, her verse and delivery is quite gangsta boo inspired, which I guess it should be noted pretty clearly that a lot of this record is very indebted to 3-6 Mafia. It seems like there are more topical and conceptual tracks on here than there have been on past 21 Savage projects too, whether it be 21 reflecting over feelings of 
abandonment and mistakes that he's made on the intro cut a lot. A surprisingly mushy song to kick a 21 Savage record off with. Also love the J. Cole feature on this thing. I think it's one of his best features, period. One of his most meta as well, not only rapping about the song that he's on, being in the studio with Savage, his sort of mentality going into writing this verse, but also other rappers out there faking their hype, faking their streams. There's also, again, A&T, the raunchy stripper anthem, the track Gunsmoke, which is just an ode to guns, 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 guns. The production generally is simple but effective. Nothing mind-blowing, but it is colorful and uh, it is trap-flavored. I like the fractured staccato notes on the track A&T. Uh, it's almost kind of glitchy in a way. The throwback soulful vocal samples on the opener are really beautiful too. The sad little woodwind bits on the track Can't Live Without It are also a nice touch. And there's a really pretty beat switch in the middle of the track Break the Law that I like a lot too. The worse this album gets is really when 21 drops a beat or a verse or there's a feature on here. This just kind of underwhelming. It's forgettable. It just kind of breezes by, which, you know, this record can kind of dip into that territory, not only because 21 Savage, he's still not that varied of an artist, but also a great deal of this record is pretty subdued, is pretty low-key. Some of it might just slip by you and feel like wallpaper. Sometimes 21's personality does get lost in the changes on this record, like All My Friends, the sentiment and the melody and the flow of this track. Just kind of seems like he's riding on Drake's coattails a little bit, even if he does sort of drop that funny fuck Kiki line <laughs> earlier in the record. The Childish Gambino feature on the song Monster was, frankly, one of the most underwhelming features of the whole bunch. Just barely passing above Little Baby and Gunna on here, who are easily the most, most, most underwhelming features on the entire record, as they sound just as generic and uninspired here as they do nearly everywhere else. The tracks ASMR and Padlock are probably two of the least definitive songs on the entire record, as they're one of a handful of cuts on here that kind of lack any real topical focus. Because while I wouldn't say that 21 Savage is doing too much on this record, it definitely is a project that's way too bloated for somebody who's just now evolving out of being a one-trick pony. Yes, it's, it's definitely got more variety, more flavor, more energy than any solo 21 record so far. But I still think it's going to be a bit longer before we hear 21 Savage dominate almost an hour of material and it's engaging in flames from start to finish. I'm glad to hear he's growing, though, and I guess I do agree with the sentiment of the title over here. This is his best personal, solo, commercial work to date. So there you go. I'm feeling a light to decent seven on this thing. Tran, zition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Big Crit compilation TDT. Big Crit is a Mississippi rapper who I have covered on this channel multiple, multiple, multiple times. Some of my most positive reviews have actually been Big Crit reviews. In fact, I think his last full-length album uh, was actually his best so far, made it on my best albums of the year list when I put that together. Uh, but last year, Big Crit did not stay silent, releasing a handful of EPs with a few tracks on each, and uh, now he has seen fit to release the songs on those EPs on a compilation that brings it all together. Last year, a lot of people were kind of hitting me up saying, Hey, why haven't you reviewed these EPs? I noticed the EPs didn't make it on your best EPs of the year list. Like, what's up? And I will admit, in 2018, I did not do as good a job of covering the EP side of things as I possibly could have. So I figured I could kind of make up for that by talking about this newly released compilation of all of these Big Crit EPs right here, right now. Let's go. So Big Crit, if you don't know, he's not only a rapper, but also a lyricist and a 
singer and a producer, really kind of a triple threat. He's greatly influenced by pop rap and conscious hip-hop, a lot of southern hip-hop, Outkast, Kanye West as well. Now, across Crit's discography, there are hits and misses, there are highs and lows. My least favorite projects of his actually are the ones that uh, um, he put out on a major label because it seems like those records, for whatever reason, were a lot more limited. However, these days he's back on his independent shit. Through that, I think his music has gotten a little better, which initially did make me excited to try these EPs because he strikes me as an artist that wouldn't release anything unless he really needed to release it, and it seems like lately he has a lot more creative freedom uh, indicated by his last full-length LP. However, uh, I feel like that freedom isn't really being taken advantage of on these new EPs. In fact, I think pretty much all of the material that these EPs presents for Crit is kind of underwhelming, even in comparison to some of his most lackluster records, uh, mostly because I think the beats generally are pretty generic, not really a whole lot in the way of interesting rhythms on this thing. A lot of the percussion on this thing just hits a, a very one-dimensional trap vibe. Lyrically, I didn't think there was a whole lot to these songs that stood out, but let me go over some of them. The opening cut, Energy, is a quick and euphoric piece of pop rap with a distinct southern flavor. It's got some sweet soaring background vocals and strings. Crit keeps up a pretty athletic flow at a consistent pace with a lot of nods to uh, the tough upward climb that he's had to keeping up his energy. Thematically, it's it's pretty general. Doesn't really get into a whole lot of details as far as what he's rapping about. The song Learn From Texas is one of Crit's many musical tributes, essentially kind of giving a nod to the music and the sounds out of the state of Texas that inspired his music over the years whether it be UGK or Chopped and Screwed. I love the instrumentals cascading synth leads that have a bit of a chimey quality to them. They almost sound 8-bit. It certainly adds a lot to the blissful, nostalgic tone of the song. The song Glorious's theme melody sounds almost like Goody Mob's Who's that creeping at my window? But like a lesser version of it. The cut presents very little in terms of an exciting rap performance or verses. Meanwhile, the track 100 grabbed my attention, but for all the wrong reasons, because easily it has the worst chorus on the entire record. Crit's O-O-O-O's all over the track sound completely ridiculous, though I do give him props for being able to very subtly shift into this glamorous R&B lane, but still be able to perform pretty well in that sound without coming off awkward or out of place. Meanwhile, Higher King Part 6 is a really passionate monologue delivered over these kind of fuzzy auto-tune vocal leads that sound like something straight out of a Kanye cut. It's kind of sad and anthemic. It sounds like something off of 808s and Heartbreak, or maybe even some of the more low-key cuts of My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. Very spacey, very dramatic, of course matched with a trap beat, and Crit has a particularly husky vocal on this cut and a flow that reminds me almost of like Rick Ross. As far as the lyrical content on this song goes, a lot of reflections on his present, his past, materialism, God. For me, the song For the Three has the most exciting groove of any cut on this record, with these bleeping synth leads and a growling bass line. It's cute but has an animalistic quality to it, but still another moment on the album that's not really going above and beyond on the rhythm side of things. Because, again, the beats on this record, for the most part, they're just really one dimensional trap beats. And considering how much experimentation's going on in the genre right now, how versatile and simplistic the form is, and how creative Crit has proven himself to be in the past, I would think that rhythm-wise, 
there'd be a bit more variety on this record, but there really isn't. Meanwhile, the compositional bits in the instrumentals, sometimes they come off kind of pretty, most times they feel super basic and uninspired, even the beats that are produced by Crit himself. Lyrically, this compilation is not nearly as topically focused as any record Crit has put out in the past. He seems to be dipping back into a lot of the same thematic wells that he has in the past, but coming up dry as far as anything new or refreshing or profound to say. And not to assert that Crit has nothing to say at all anymore, I just think that he didn't really spend as much time on these tracks as he has on a lot of his recent material. It's like he's groomed and refined these songs just to the point where they sound acceptable enough to release. I don't know if that's because the ideas on these tracks are left over from his last album, or if he just wanted to rush a bunch of songs together to kind of give fans something to listen to to hold them over before the next big project. In a lot of ways, the material on TDT, it sounds just as breezy and casual and almost effortless as like what Migos were doing on Culture 2. In fact, I could imagine Quavo and Offset and Takeoff doing any number of boring Migosisms over these instrumentals. Overall, TDT, the EPs on it, the material it presents, it's just not as colorful or as creative or as versatile as we've known Crit to be in the past. Just seems like a really slapped together collection of songs. And believe me, these cuts are by no means unlistenable. I'd actually say they're listenable to the point where they don't challenge the listener to do anything other than just have it on in the background. Because outside of a few pretty instrumental bits and some personal and specific verses, there's not much here that could legitimately inspire any sort of excitement or thought. I think TDT, at the end of the day, it's passable. It's okay. Hardcore fans will most likely love it, but in the grander scheme of things, it is completely average and unremarkable for Crit. And I know he's capable of so much more. I'm feeling a strong five to a light six on this thing. Tran. Zition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Bad Bunny record, X100 Pre. This is the debut full-length album of rising Latin trap star Bad Bunny, a Puerto Rican singer and rapper who has exploded in popularity with the recent rise of trap-flavored pop rap geared toward Spanish-speaking audiences. The sub-bass and the rattling hi-hats and the crispy snares and the triplet flows, they made it to Latin America, and now artists like Bad Bunny are essentially fusing those sounds with Latin pop and reggaeton and R&B, among other things. And it creates a somewhat refreshing sound, though I think Bad Bunny sticks closely enough to the current day trap blueprint so that his tracks could be played pretty seamlessly in a Spotify playlist with Drake on it. And I mean, Drake is in fact on this record, on the closing cut, Mia. A single I didn't really care for when it first dropped, a single that I still don't really like now that it's in the context of the record either. It's a very spacey and forgettable and vanilla track that I think speaks to the laziness that that Drake sort of oozes on a lot of his new material. Not to single my dislike of this one track out though, because there were other reasons I wasn't all that excited to hear this LP, namely Bad Bunny's singing voice. Over the past couple of years, as this dude has successfully transitioned from grocery store employee to Latin trap superstar, I've heard a handful of pretty high profile features from him. With Will Smith and J-Lo and Cardi B, he's been plastered all over the front of Apple Music for days and days and days at a time. And whether it's a feature or one of his many successful singles, Bad Bunny consistently comes through with this bellowing, throaty voice. It's like the vocal equivalent to a bull just charging through a china shop. <laughs> And deeper into this record, there are more spots where Bad Bunny exhibits odder vocal quirks. Like, for one, 
he, most likely because of his intense singing style, will usually start a lot of lines off with him just gasping for air. <laughs> it sounds like repeatedly through his own album he's being waterboarded on mic or like someone's dunking his head into a tank and then he's coming up for air. All of this adds together into something that's very loud, it's very ear-grabbing, but I, I can't really say that I enjoy it. For sure, Bad Bunny sounds unlike a lot of other singers and vocalists out there in the current pop trap field, but I'm just left wondering whether or not he has anything else to offer listeners who might have kind of gotten their attention grabbed by him uh, on a feature here and there or like a random single. And to his credit, on this album he does make an attempt to vary up his sound a little bit, try some different things. I applaud him for not putting out a totally one-dimensional album, trying out various sounds and styles within the trap genre while also throwing a few unexpected surprises in there too. And most of this variety comes through on the production end of things. The beats really do tend to steal the show because they're all pretty infectious and detailed and entrancing, like the heavy trap percussion which backs up very well the trippy effects and the plucky chords and finishing violins on the opening cut, or on Tenemos Que Hablar which feels like a fusion between trap and pop rock. I mean, I can't say I think it sounds all that good as a tune or as a meld of styles, but it's certainly unique. The song Otra Noche in Miami has a throwback 80s synthwave quality to it. Feels like I'm spending a night in Grand Theft Auto's Vice City where I'm just like, doing tons of coke and strippers, and there's a nice gauzy vaporwave aesthetic to it. Then there's also the warped and sad pianos that warp psychedelically into a wash of auto-tune vocals on the track which in a lot of ways sounds exactly like something Travis Scott would do on a record, which is not the only spot on this album where I hear a pretty bold Travis Scott influence. Without a doubt, all of these production bells and whistles are a nice touch, they add a lot of flavor and character to the record. They definitely play a huge factor in this album's enjoyability, but for the most part, it is kind of a distraction from Bad Bunny's vocal shortcomings. Even with him attempting at going into a falsetto range and riffing on some more expressive vocal lines on like Si Estuvésemos Juntos, or even some low-key gospel-ish vocals on the track Caro. Meanwhile, we have other cuts on this record where the songwriting runs thin, the beats feel a little generic and even Bad Bunny's voice. He's kind of painted himself into a corner because he has nothing really left to present us. Whether it be on Ser Bichote or Estamos Bien, probably the most vapid cut on the entire record, featuring this really awkward flow that really doesn't invite the listener to bob their head or anything. Also, these squeaky, undefined synth melodies that get lost in this wash of reverb. It sounds like a wintry nightmare. There are maybe a few spots on this thing where Bad Bunny comes through with a vocal melody that's uniquely good, transcends the genre he's in, transcends the language barrier, but for the most part the vocals on this thing are either increasingly getting obnoxious or they are falling into the background because the tone and the timbre is so same across the entire record that it just feels like wallpaper after a while. The vocal performances from one track to the next, they come off very, very samey. The beats consistently steal the show, as I said earlier, and what's crazy about that is that the beats aren't even that amazing. Sure, many of them sound pretty expensive and kind of refined, but if you've been paying attention to a lot of the biggest mainstream rap records over the past couple of years, there's nothing really on this album that's all that cutting edge or refreshing. Is anything on this album as experimental or as adventurous as what you might hear on JPEG Mafia's Veteran? Not really. Is anything on this record as luscious, colorful, surreal, and cutting edge as you might hear on Travis Scott's Astroworld? 
No. Neither is Bad Bunny trying to say anything all that profound on a lot of these cuts either. I mean, given that I'm not a native Spanish speaker, maybe there are some elements of wordplay here that I'm not privy to. Maybe some of the songs on this thing where he's kind of in his feels over a failed relationship, just some love on the rocks, might speak to other people more than me. But lyrically, this record is not really looking to blow your mind or anything like that. Which is something I've been happy to overlook in the past with other records if they've presented some great instrumentals or some good vocal performances or a unique personality or something, but I just don't really feel like this record has that at its disposal. I think the closest this record came to bordering on something super interesting is the song Cuando Periabas, which I think is the only time I've heard reggaeton and trap and glitch hop melded together. Maybe unintentionally, but I don't know, the squawky synthesizers and some of the weird noisy effects, it's all intentionally cacophonous, it seems like. I don't think how noisy and freaky this song sounds is an accident or anything. And it's oddly satisfying despite how grating it is. La Romana is also one of the more enjoyably raw cuts on this thing, especially after a very sharp beat switch in the second half, and a super grimy feature from El Alpha. Overall, though, this new Bad Bunny, it's a kind of spotty and slightly bloated album, with a pretty much even mix of highs and lows. And while there are some moments of genius on this record where I think Bad Bunny vocally does pretty well, the instrumental is pretty awesome, for the most part, the cuts on this record feel like Bad Bunny's just executing a random shotgun blast of tracks where he's just trying a little bit of everything. Some of it works out, some of it doesn't. A lot of cuts on here where he's wearing his influence very clearly on his sleeve and he's just trying to hop into a lane where another popular rapper already is to kind of just ride on those coattails. And he's not really putting that deep of a spin on the sound that he's trying to copy. Meanwhile, he's trying to string a lot of this project together by delivering a lot of these very lovesick lyrics. It's pretty good in spots, but I think that's the most complimentary thing I can say about it as much of the record is really inconsistent, while also being too consistent. I mean, vocally speaking, I would love to hear Bad Bunny switch it up a little bit more. Meanwhile, there are instrumentals and tunes on this thing that just feel like total duds. Because Bad Bunny can certainly hold a pitch, but I feel like there are a lot of spots on this thing vocally where it's almost like he just hits autopilot mode and just kind of delivers his song in the same timbre that he does every other track that he's on. I'm feeling a decent to strong five on this thing. Tran. Zition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Marky Hill record, Modern Flows Volume 2. Marky Hill is a trumpet player, a band leader, and a composer out of Chicago who's been dropping one record after the next for the good part of this decade now. His brand of jazz fits into a pretty wide range from old school modal stuff to uh, more modern fusions with hip-hop and soul and R&B and pop. That is still the case on his latest full-length record over here, which is a pretty beefy follow-up to the Modern Flows EP that dropped several years ago. Maybe it's also his beefiest record yet in general, standing at 15 tracks and over an hour of material. The personnel on this record is as follows. Of course, you have Marky e. Hill on trumpet, Josh Johnson on alto saxophone, Joel Ross on vibraphone, Junius Paul on bass, and Jonathan Pinson on the drums. Also throughout the record are a handful of different guest vocalists and rappers that are peppered throughout the tracks. Only a handful of moments though, the majority of this album is 
straight jazz performances. I don't want to hear anybody complaining about, oh, I don't like raps all over my jazz. Though pretty much all the verses on this record are wonderfully and cleverly abstract or socially conscious, and the jazz rap backdrops the band provides are pretty funky and enjoyable. Contrast moments like this with a track like Kiss and Tell, which features a lovey-dovey duet between Braxton Cook and Rachel Robinson right in the middle of the record. Overall, the band has a pretty versatile sound between the guest vocalists, the solo abilities of each individual member, the horn harmonies, the serene vibraphone chords, the dynamic and very busy drums, the nimble bass, a few spoken word passages. Add on to that the number of tracks the band is hitting listeners with on this record and all the genres they're bringing into the fold. Pretty routinely throughout this record, the band presents one fun, flashy idea after another or a different direction with a very clean, modern sound and tight, brisk performances. There are some cuts on this record that frankly come off pretty serene, meditative, low-key. Prayer for the People featuring Emerald Green is certainly an example. Not only on this track does she give this really compelling spoken word piece on gentrification, black families essentially being priced out of their own neighborhoods, but the track eventually evolves into these grand, weepy horn harmonies and some wonderfully smooth drum and bass grooves. There are also some points where you get kind of like these overlapping vibes and trumpet leads that are absolutely gorgeous. The band turns up the heat on a few cuts here, especially on Moments of Flow, which has one of the most unique grooves I've heard on a modern jazz song in a while, especially considering how the bass plays off of the drums on this track. Hill and his band present equally unique grooves on the intro to As I Am, on the Cut the Watcher, and even though a lot of the performance performances and the solos on this thing can hit hard, especially the vibraphone solos. They are dizzying on this record. Uh, but, 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 but. I wouldn't necessarily say there's anything about the performances on modern flows that feels overly aggressive or anything like that. The punchiest this album gets is really on the more jazz rap influence cuts where the bass and the drums are really kind of turned up. For the most part, what defines Hill and his band's performances on this record is this really subtle presentation of incredibly complex and intricate interplay between each musician on this record. Because the band plays so freaking well, they have this knack for hitting the listener with an onslaught of impressive solos and embellishments, some of which just coincide, especially with Jonathan Pinson. Whenever there's an intense moment where the horns or the vibes are building or just going absolutely wild, he is not shy about kind of just going through some insane drum fills. But throughout the moments of very nuanced and subtle chaos on this record, the band always seems very tight. It always comes together really well. And while I'm talking about the track The Watcher, I do want to say I love how the song musically transitions into the next cut, which is more of a jazz rap song, and, and that track essentially thrives off of a music loop from The Watcher, so it's almost like a bit of a musical genre transition and epilogue of sorts. And that's one of many kind of tiny, subtle moments throughout this record where the songs on this thing kind of link together very nicely. The flow of this record overall is pretty great, especially in the first half. There are also a lot of very nice instrumental and aesthetic threads that run through a lot of these cuts, so even though it is a long album, it all feels very cohesive. As far as other highlights on this record go, I do love the track Ego vs. Spirit, which after the way the difference between the two is explained on the back end of the song, it makes the contrast of more beautiful and kind of laid back passages on this cut, uh, which kind of mix with the more intense solo passages, which are a lot darker and maybe a bit more uh, sinister. Uh, it kind of makes the dichotomy between those two sounds uh, much more apparent. 
and uh, almost feels like I'm listening to a bit of a musical yin and yang. I also love some of the more deconstructed music passages on the track As I Am Too, and uh, I mean, even though there are highlights that I can pick up throughout the entire album, I will say I do think the second half isn't quite as thrilling as the first. To go back to the Cook and Robinson duet on the record, I find their vocal performances to be a bit more theatrical than they are legitimately passionate or fiery or exciting, as talented vocally as they seem to be. Meanwhile, there are a handful of other cuts like Smoke Break and It's All Beautiful and even the song Stellar to an extent, which to me just feel like overly smooth filler. I mean, the tracks are very easygoing, they're pleasant, they're pretty, but there's nothing particular about their performance or their progression or composition or even the solos on the track that are really all that gripping. They just really kind of feel like wallpaper in comparison to a lot of what else is here. While I do admire the band's attempts to kind of break up the flow of this record with some more easygoing cuts, these songs are just missing anything exciting or interesting for me. And I do have a slight gripe with the mix and the sound of the record in some spots because I do wish the bass and the drums had a bit more body and space and presence. There are quite a few songs here where I feel like they come off a bit too dry and, and flat, like they don't have enough oomph in the mix. I mean, granted, on the more hip-hop-led cuts, they do feel quite beefy, but uh, on some of the more jazz-oriented numbers, they, they just don't really uh, have that much push in comparison. Uh, with the vibes and the and the horns. Though that's most likely the rock and hip-hop fan in me talking, and also I, I do sort of acknowledge that there is kind of a difficulty there with how these different genres respectively are mixed, especially jazz and rap, and yet you have an artist over here who's trying to bring the two together effectively, and, and for the most part I think he does. All that being said though, I think this is a really great and dynamic, fun, colorful, and incredibly well-executed jazz record, with a lot of flavor, a lot of variety, clean sound, great performances, and certainly a very modern edge to it, too. I'm feeling a strong 7 to a light 8 on this thing. And it is time for a track review. I'm going to uh, give this new James Blake cut a shot that everyone has been hyping up James Blake and a lot of other people have dropped albums this weekend. This is the first big album release week for 2019. You know, things uh, sort of go into hibernation for a little bit in the music industry, subtly so, uh, toward the beginning and, and very, very, very end of the year. And, and now it seems like we're getting back into the swing of things. And uh, we're coming out of the, the gates swinging with guns blazing with a James Blake record locked and loaded. Uh, let's give the song Mile High a shot. A lot of people have been talking about it across the internet because it features Metro Boomin and Travis Scott. Obviously not the first time James has worked with anybody uh, in the hip-hop world or anything like that, but I'm curious to see how exactly these artists mesh together. So, Mile High, let's try it and uh, see <laughs> exactly what goes on. Okay, there we have Mile High, Metro Boomin, Travis Scott, James Blake. I'll, I'll say a few things about this track. One, I think the collaborative element of it came together pretty smoothly. At least from my perspective, it seemed pretty clear what sounds and influences were coming from where. I mean, the 
bass and the rhythms, the percussion very much seemed like your usual mix of, uh, you know, Metro Boomin uh, trap patterns. Uh, meanwhile, Travis Scott's voice, his flows, uh, you know, the auto-tune, that's kind of his usual deal. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, it would seem that some of the more lo-fi and textured and strange atmospheric synth sounds uh, combined with James Blake's very forlorn and uh, <laughs> I guess kind of a, a burnt voice, uh, which is beckoning in a very dramatic way, is is what he's bringing to the table. And it, it all comes together pretty um, smoothly. You know, I wouldn't say there's anything too awkward about the pairing of all of these sounds. I think it comes together in a logical way uh, where each artist is kind of contributing what you typically know them for in a song. And it just uh, functions on the most simple and, and baseline level possible. But what can we really get from this track beyond that? I'm not really sure because in my opinion, the, the lyrics, the verses, uh, the flow Travis brings to the table, I mean, the beat itself, um, some of the sounds that are kind of, uh, uh, hanging in the background and painting a very dark ambiance around this track. None of it to me is really all that remarkable. You know, it's cool that the individual elements work together, but is there any individual piece vocally or instrumentally or rhythmically that to me stands out as being like, wow, this is like really good. They really fucking killed it on this track. Um, not particularly. It's kind of underwhelming and I'm not really seeing this collaboration as exciting in any way other than in name. Not only that, but I, I guess there's also a stylistic element to the song that just kind of makes it difficult to swallow it as a James Blake track. I mean, to me, it very much just seems like a Travis Scott song featuring James Blake, as opposed to a James Blake song featuring Travis Scott. Travis Scott is the first and the most present voice that you hear on the cut. I would argue that he steals a lot more limelight throughout the track than James Blake does, even throughout some of the more moody and emotional vocal passages that he brings to the table. Um, I could see this being like a very chill downtrodden and uh, somewhat experimental cut that could have worked into Astroworld or something like that. But is there really anything about this song that to me says, oh, James Blake, man, this is like such a great James Blake track. Uh, not particularly. And not to try to pigeonhole James Blake because uh, really every album and project he's dropped up until this point, there's really been very little in the way of stylistic consistency from one project to the next with what he's done. James Blake is an incredibly versatile artist, even if I don't care for one album as much as I do another. But what kind of makes it difficult to see this song right here as like a true blue James Blake track is that it doesn't sound like he's forging a way forward into something different that we're not hearing other artists out there do. It just seems like he's merely lending his voice to an already very established sound and trend, which he's brought two artists into the fold to recreate for him on his record, James is merely kind of painting around all of it in a somewhat pretty way, but not in a fashion where it's it's convincing enough to where I'm thinking, wow, he's really dominating this track or flipping it in such a way where he's making the sound his own. In my opinion, not, not really. But uh, I guess those are my thoughts on this track. Uh, again, a little underwhelmed by it, and uh, hopefully deeper cuts on this thing are a bit more exciting and intriguing, and I guess I will leave it at that. And uh, today I'm going to be reacting to a 
review of me. I've been reviewed, essentially. I have been reviewed uh, by the dean of American rock critics, Mr. Robert Criscow, who has been a leading voice in the world of music journalism and music reviews for a very, very long time. Uh, respect to the God. Uh, not only that, but I do respect a guy who does sort of come with, you know, a handle, a calling card, the dean of American rock critics, the internet's busiest music nerd. I highly respect that. Look, it's it's rare that someone that is of uh, Robert's generation and is cut from his cloth is uh, speaking on or paying attention to me. So this is kind of a rare moment. Uh, so let me just read into it and, and let's just see what he says. Um, so it seems like Anthony Fantano's by far the most discussed music reviewer on the internet these days. Have you watched any of his reviews? Do you think he's a good critic? And uh, then Robert goes on to say, I don't watch reviews. I read writing. When I'm at a computer, I almost never click on links to podcasts or televised news, uh, much less criticism for two reasons. First, reading is faster than listening. And second, I'm continually using my ears to listen to music. So... I did post this uh, spiel that he went on uh, to Instagram yesterday, and there was a lot of harsh reactions to it, especially this bit. I think the reason why is that this is most likely uh, the section of Robert's commentary that my viewers may take offense to the most because they obviously enjoy watching reviews. So Robert sort of right out of the gate uh, in a way, is guaranteeing that they're not going to listen to anything that he's saying because he's kind of poo-pooing on their primary format when it comes to just enjoying or uh, consuming art or music or cultural criticism because uh, a lot of that these days has kind of been put into the hands of not necessarily gatekeepers who are working for large publications, but uh, people like not only me, but also like, uh, I don't know, the angry video game nerd, you know, who years and years and years ago hopped onto YouTube to uh, complain and rant and rave about some of the worst video games he's ever played uh, over the course of his life. For Robert to sort of come out and crap over the medium uh, just as a concept is, you know, uh, just dismiss it uh, without even really kind of explaining uh, deeply as to why is, I don't know, in my opinion, not the best look. Uh, I do find it interesting that he finds reading faster than listening, but the guy's been writing and reading for years, and maybe for him personally it is. But uh, do keep in mind there are a lot of uh, <laughs> podcast platforms and also on YouTube. Uh, you can play the videos two times as fast. Uh, you could even decide to play this video two times the speed if you want to get through it faster as well. But uh, as a music reviewer and as a music critic, uh, I do sort of understand that Robert is listening to music all the time. I myself uh, think about just how much music listening and reviewing I could possibly get done if I were writing instead of doing this in video. So I do think Robert does certainly have a point uh, in terms of writing and text's simplicity and convenience in a way. Uh, sure, it does ask a little bit more of the consumer, but for the reviewer and the creator, it would certainly be you know a lot simpler for me to sort of pump out a bunch of text-based reviews than it would be to write a script, then shoot the video, then make sure all of this technical sh having to do with the video over a long period of time is uh, making sense, functional, and continues to stay functional, then get that edited, then go over it again, and then eventually release it. 
uh, have to upload it to the internet instead of just simply one-click publishing. So it does become a bit of a time-consuming thing. So, uh, you know, Robert certainly does make some points here, uh, even if younger viewers who uh, read what he's saying here may not necessarily uh, glean much from it outside of, hey, he doesn't like, you know, reviews on video. Uh, although, um, I will say that uh, uh, I, I don't really care for, uh, uh, you know, a tone that he kind of takes uh, with this later in his spiel, but we'll kind of get into that after. Uh, moving on from there, he says, moreover, no one I know uh, discusses Anthony Fantano, a name I barely recognized, um, which I'm fine with. Uh, I don't need to appeal to everybody. I know I don't appeal to everybody. Um, I, <laughs> I know that, you know, sort of claiming the title of uh, one of the most popular music critics out there is not necessarily like, you know, going to make me a household name or anything like that, which is completely fine. Um, and honestly, uh, I I would actually say I kind of prefer it this way. Uh, I do kind of like being in my own lane and in my own niche. I don't uh, attempt to try to challenge Robert or anybody who is sort of cut from his cloth and doing what I do. I just do what I enjoy doing. I do it for my audience and my audience consumes it. Uh, I'm not doing this to get in the craw of anybody working in the industry. I actually think Robert's attitude is more sensible than that of some people in the music industry, especially on the writing side, who for uh, no reason are, are obsessed with me and hate me and uh, <laughs> wish to do awful things to me. So um, I can respect Robert's just general neutrality and lack of interest in what I do here. If what I do does not appeal to you and it's uh, not a challenge to you and uh, you don't care for the tone, the format, the style, then ignore it. You know, you don't, you don't got to watch it. You don't got to watch me. So, I mean, Robert's position here, I can totally respect. You know, he's a man who knows what he wants and he wants it a certain way. And uh, I'm not delivering it in that way. So he, you know, really has no strong opinions on me right there. Uh, in regards to that, uh, glancing over uh, glancing over his Wikipedia entry, he seems to have arrived at a plausible brand of 21st century rock crit taste uh, that runs toward what I'll call dark prog, <laughs> which I think is the funniest term he uses through the entire piece. Now, if if you know anything about Robert, which maybe some of you don't, because you're you're younger and this era of rock criticism isn't really anything you paid attention to or consumed, uh, Ro Robert is not a huge Prague guy, you know, not to say that he hasn't uh, lent an ear to uh, more experimental or cutting edge groups over the years. He certainly has, but uh, uh, progressive rock is not necessarily, uh, you know, in his wheelhouse or one of his favorite movement movements or genres. Uh, so, you know, that that obviously uh, continues to be the case. I guess. But uh, I find it interesting that he would uh, categorize a lot of the music that I enjoy these days as dark prog. Uh, but still, uh, uh, I would maybe agree with that assessment to a degree because uh, I do like some newer technical records, some uh, more conceptual and long-winded records, which is uh, kind of in league with uh, proginess, progisms, I guess you could say, uh, if I'm going to make up my own <laughs> lazy terminology here. Uh, and some of it does tend to be quite dark. I was looking at some of my 10 out of 10s uh, a little while ago and thinking, man, who who would love all of these records outside of somebody who really uh, is maybe depressed or likes some really dark music or something? So dark, dark prog, I'm not completely against that categorization. <laughs> uh, the Godfathering, uh, Swans, 
this year's number one daughters on the rap end, his beloved death grips, uh, which is another one of my favorite phrases in his answer. His beloved death grips. His beloved death grips. Don't you dare speak ill of his beloved death grips. Uh, but he's clearly broader than that, which I, I think slipped by a lot of people as actually a compliment. I have tastes that reach further than these dark underground brands of music. Um, you know, he says, uh, uh, I, although a little apparent interest in the pop end or indeed tune or indeed fun. So he, he thinks that I don't uh, like tune or fun all that much. <laughs> I'm very much a fuddy-duddy, according to uh, Robert Christgau. I, I don't like much fun. Um, not a very fun person. Um, <clears throat> but moving on from there. However, always a tragic and psychologically revealing lacuna. Uh, nowhere near as insensible to hip-hop and R&B as dark proggers tend to be. So I, I didn't know that there was a whole movement of dark proggers out there. And how limited uh, they usually are when it comes to hip-hop and R&B. Apparently, I'm, I'm one of the few dark proggers who's willing to kind of cross that threshold, I guess. <laughs> Though, I, I don't know how aware Robert is of the fact that uh, there are hundreds of thousands of people that follow me that listen to a lot of the same mix of artists. And, and generally, music listeners these days, because of the cultural... Uh, boundaries, those insular boundaries that have been uh, erased in a lot of ways because of the internet, a lot of people are listening to a lot of different genres all at once. I mean, not only rock, not only experimental rock, but also blends of metal and hip hop and pop and R&B. Uh, that's uh, a lot of diverse tastes out there these days because of the ease of access the internet has created. So uh, I guess in comparison with Dark Proggers, I'm, I'm a little bit more open to hip hop, I suppose. Uh, moving on from there, uh, but note that very few female artists uh, crack his top tens, which in 2018 was really missing. Uh, he was really missing the action, which I think is a bit unfair considering the Hiro Namiri made my top ten, the Natalia Lafourcade, the um, <clears throat> No Name record made my top ten, and there were other artists that were not far from that positioning, whether it be uh, Sophie, uh, one of the biggest uh, trans artists out there at the moment, who was actually missing from some major publications' top lists. Um, also on top of that, the uh, new Caliuchis record. Fantano seems to have figured out a way to make some kind of living by disseminating his own criticism in the online age. That's an achievement, uh, but until he starts putting it in written language, I'll live without. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, in another way, it's it's uh, a little backhanded, but uh, still a compliment. Hey, it's an achievement. I'm doing my own thing. It's my own kind of criticism, so on and so forth. Um you know, I, I will say the comment that I wanted to make earlier, though, is that, look, what I'm doing here isn't necessarily the most original thing under the sun. I mean, I feel like Siskel and Ebert kind of established the whole, like, quality criticism on video thing long before I came onto the scene, long before the internet was even a thing. For Robert to poo-poo the concept as if it's not already established in some kind of way, shape, or form is uh, kind of interesting, but whatever. Most likely there are going to be people who watch my videos and will react to what Robert is saying here very negatively because maybe it comes from a place of pretension. Maybe it comes from a place of him just kind of being uh, biased due to his preferences and his generational uh, boundaries and so on and so forth. But look, um, <laughs> for somebody who has a lot of vitriol thrown at him uh, every month uh, over opinions or uh, from industry people who just don't like 
what I do and uh, what, what they feel it uh, brings to the table and, and sort of uh, uh, the air that it sucks out of the room, I guess. Um, th- this is, this is not as bad as it could have been by a long shot. Uh, this is, this is <laughs> by far nowhere near as concerning as, uh, some of the nastier things that I've seen groups of people in, uh, uh, enclaves, uh, on the internet where they think they're like completely hidden away from access to anybody, uh, just like dunking on me and just like talking about how horrible I am and saying like all this crazy unfounded shit that they're just like totally assuming about uh, my life, my personality, my marriage, my happiness, my mental health, my worldview, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, even though it seems like most of what Robert thinks about me is based on a really quick glance at (laughs) Wikipedia and uh, a baseline understanding of the concept of what I do, uh, it's, it's not the nastiest thing you could have said. I'll, I'll take, I'll take the W on that. I'll, I'll take that as a good thing. So, um, look, you know, Robert, uh, Anthony at the needle That's my email. Uh, if you are in fact, uh, watching this, I know you don't watch a lot of things. You, uh, more read things, but, uh, Hey, you know, I'd be happy to, um, send you an email of any critique of any album that I have done that I've written out because I do sort of write scripts and bullet points. It's not the most well put together, uh, piece of, uh, uh, writing that, uh, you'll most likely ever read. If you do hit me up and ask olive branch there, if you really want to read anything that I've ever said or thought, uh, over the past few years, because uh, it's been more recently that I've been, uh, typing them down than literally writing them down because I literally used to write, uh, my reviews out into like a freaking essay pad or whatever. Um, if you are really interested in sort of reading that stuff, I'd be happy to email it over. So, uh, uh, Anthony at the needle you know, what's up rock music. There's pretty much an accepted sentiment right now that the genre it's, it's dead. Rock music is dead. Da 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 da. While there may be some people out there who literally think this is true, I think the position is is a little naive because if you, I don't know, really look at any year end list, there's really no shortage of rock albums that people seem to be out there enjoying. My number one album of the year last year had rock music on it. Uh, another record I gave a 10 had elements of rock music on it. So, I mean, I I don't really think the genre has gone anywhere. Honestly, the only place you don't really see rock music these days is at the top of the charts. And, and I think that's what a lot of people mean when they talk about rock music being dead, uh, sort of the, the, the aesthetic, the style, the sound, it's definitely not as popular or as viral as it used to be, I guess. And it's my opinion that, I think I think this is going to be good for the genre. I think it's actually good for the genre that rock music is dead, essentially. Because I think rock is in a position where if it's going to grab widespread attention again, it needs to do something new. It needs to come through with something creative. It needs to reinvent itself. It needs to come through with a sound and a message that actually appeals to millennial listeners, uh, appeals to their worldview, appeals to their ethos appeals to basically the the troubles and the the tribulations that they're going through 
uh, in the modern era. I think there's certainly the option out there for rock bands if they want to appeal to the boomers, you know, just do a little bit of a Greta Van Fleet thing, just copy the old stuff bar for bar, just sound basically like a cover band of an older group that's already well established because there are plenty of rock artists out there that are popular and have younger listeners, but usually they're older and listeners are listening to their classic albums and that sort of thing, which unfortunately inspires a lot of newer artists to just kind of copy that blueprint because they think it's their way to get fans and get people listening to their stuff. Nostalgia is pretty good in small doses, but I think you can certainly overdo it, but I digress. What a lot of people don't necessarily acknowledge when they talk about the good old days and when rock was more popular and rock was topping the charts, who and what exactly were those artists and albums that were so popular within the rock genre? Honestly, for the most part, it wasn't good stuff. It was Godsmack. It was Creed. It was terrible hair metal. It was Nickelback. It was all this post-grunge garbage. Sure, while you can argue over the past 20 or 30 years, rock has been at points where it's been more popular than it is right now, the most popular stuff, for the most part, was never really the good stuff, never really the best stuff. Honestly, with rock's relative irrelevancy at the moment, I think all it's really done is culled the bullshit out and it's kind of disincentivized anybody from wanting to just kind of get in on the mainstream music grift and just start recording music to make a buck and get famous. Now, of course, that hasn't eliminated any and all mediocrity. There are bad albums coming out across all genres at the moment, but right now rock music is not really that genre that you can essentially cash in on. Ultimately, I think that's a good thing. I think it's put a lot of artists in a position where they are free to just kind of experiment and just do willy-nilly, just do whatever, because there's really no commercial demand for them to fit into a particular mold or sound. So they're really free to explore any ideas or artistic whims that they may have. And I just want to remind everybody, with complete freedom to make whatever you want and such wide access to recording technology out there... <laughs> Like, obviously, the genre has changed over the years, but there are clearly still tons of artists out there recording and willing to participate in a genre that all in all is not really all that popular. And that's honestly what should be driving you to the music anyway, that you like it, that you enjoy it, whether or not the band or the record that you're listening to that touches you, that moves you. It may not have leagues and leagues of fans. It may not be a platinum record. It may not be at the top of the charts, but I mean, as long as you enjoy it and it touches you and Hey, maybe you're able to turn a few people onto it in your immediate circle. Like what's the big deal? What more could we ask for as music fans? So generally I kind of see this moment where the limelight is diminished on not only the rock genre, but really any genre out there that used to be popular. This is a chance and this is an opportunity to get back in the shed, start tinkering, start recreating, start building from the ground up and come through with something brand new and exciting that's going to blow listeners away. And I think there are legitimately artists out there in the genre that are trying to do that. However, I, I think we're also dependent on whether or not uh, this new generation of listeners are ready to accept whatever you're creating too, because, you know, as, as uh, critics and as creatives, we can only do so much to kind of advocate or push for something. Ultimately, the audience has to be into it. You know, you can bring a horse to water, uh, but you can't make them drink, you, you know how the saying goes. So ultimately, I think the, the, the death or the fall from grace for any genre out there is not necessarily 
really the end of anything. Because if you look through the history of popular music in America, there have been tons of trends that have come and have gone and have returned, totally reinvented. Just take pop music, for example. Pop music sounds entirely different now than it did back in the 1980s. Every genre and every new generation of artists eventually has to come to a point where you got to get with the times and it just kind of is what it is. You know, there's, there's no fighting progress, I think. I mean, you can certainly try and be dragged kicking and screaming and some people might even applaud you for the attempt, but the fans and the trends and the music are going to go where they are going to go. Because honestly, I think it's more admirable for artists to get in the thick of what's happening now. And instead of rejecting going forward altogether to find a way to guide the current state of things into a direction that's more interesting. So I'm going to leave it at that. I don't think the the death of rock music is necessarily a bad thing. I think it allows the genre to experiment, try some new stuff, bring in some new blood while everybody's attention is focused elsewhere and there's not as much pressure to do one particular thing or follow one specific trend. And if you've been paying attention to some of the new voices and records that have been coming into the fold over the past few years, I mean, you would know that there's good stuff out there. You just kind of have to go out of your way to hear it a little bit, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Just clicking through some stuff that's not super viral or hyped through the internet is a lot less effort and work on the part of the listener than having to go out to a, a physical music store and just guess whether or not the record that you're buying that you've never heard of is actually good. good, 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 good. And uh, I'm going to talk good. on something that uh, a lot of you have most likely been hearing buzz about, but uh, uh, I, I haven't commented on yet. And that is this new series, the Surviving R. Kelly series. I do highly recommend that you check out this series if you can, because it is very powerful it is very telling. You have not only testimonies of uh, people who R. Kelly has allegedly directly victimized, but you also have tons of people who have worked for him, have been in his camp over the years, who have literally been around this stuff, uh, looked the other way actively, or in some cases, uh, even kind of helped it happen because when R. Kelly uh, years and years and years and years and years ago was uh, forging this uh, very, very not okay romantic relationship with Aaliyah, uh, you had this guy in his camp uh, who's, you know, talking on camera and, you know, and, and there's documentation of this, uh, essentially faking uh, documents so that him and Aaliyah could get married because she had to lie about her age in order to... Uh, uh, get the marriage to go through because at the time she was not 18 with this very powerful series out and making the rounds and grabbing a lot of attention because it, I think it is a very, um, important series of interviews, uh, not only for what it reveals, but also, um, what it illustrates as far as the, the process of abuse that people in R. Kelly's position are able to create with their influence, their wealth and their fame, the desperation for uh, the people around them to kind of protect them and, and live uh, adjacent to their fame. Because it, it sort of puts uh, R. Kelly and a lot of other artists in position where they can effectively take someone out of their life who may be kind of naive and turn the way that they live upside down, make them dependent on them and effectively uh, kind of turn that person, uh, I, I 
Yes, I would refer to the terminology used uh, recently when there was discussion about R. Kelly uh, sort of like having uh, like a harem or sex slaves or something like because he's he's literally got these people um, who he's victimized around him that uh, are dependent on him because he's used his resources to kind of block them off from the world and make sure that everything that they want or need uh, is wholly dependent on him. That is sort of a side to this story that often a lot of people are missing and, and something that a lot of people don't necessarily get when they think like, oh, well, you know, why don't you just leave or why don't you just go? Um, because, I mean, obviously people who are in R. Kelly's position make the process of that really difficult or scary. Since this series came out, artists who have worked with R. Kelly over the past have been stumbling over themselves to basically be like, oh, I, I collaborated with R. Kelly and it was a mistake. I, I didn't mean to do it or it was a bad idea or blah, 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 um, stumbling over themselves. Like everybody's like in a race to be the first to, uh, you know, sort of disavow their R. Kelly collaboration. But one person who has been eerily silent on it is the person who has really collaborated with him the most and incredibly closely. Uh, and that's Jay-Z. He's put out two full-length collaborative records with the guy. But what's kind of weird and concerning about the Jay-Z R. Kelly collaborative timeline is they come through with this record, The Best of Both Worlds, in 2002. And then Jay-Z separates himself from R. Kelly a bit once the allegations surrounding the child porn and the PP tape are in full swing. But then once R. Kelly gets through all of that, Jay-Z sees no issue with collaborating with R. Kelly again on another full-length album in 2004. So, I mean, you know, Jay-Z was working with R. Kelly during a time when the allegations against him and uh, the freakiest and the weirdest instances of what he was doing were, were at their, like, peak of public scrutiny and attention. So, um, you know, for, for someone like Jay-Z, if he does in fact come out, uh, uh, you know, talking about this, it's going to be impossible for him to take the position of, oh, you know, I didn't know, blah, 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 blah. There's also this recently, um, Wendy Williams interview featuring Nas, uh, this radio interview where, you know, he pretty much alleges, uh, you know, oh, I've been around R. Kelly and, uh, you know, I know there's freaky stuff going on uh, in his camp, in his crew, Jay-Z. And this is, of course, is in the midst of his beef with Jay-Z. So, you know, of course, he's going to kind of throw Jay-Z under the bus. But still, you know, saying like, you can't tell me that uh, Jay-Z hanging out with R. Kelly as much as he does, working with R. Kelly as much as he does. He's not seeing like 14-year-olds or young teenagers like sitting on his lap and da 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 With all the information that we have now. And with this new and necessary sensitivity toward uh, the, uh, the abuses that have been exposed by the Me Too movement and, uh, and being married to somebody who proclaims himself to be a proud feminist, uh, Beyonce the feminist, and also somebody who, um, you know, has, has a daughter as well. Is this not something that concerns you? Is this not something that you feel like is worth speaking out about? Because honestly, at the end of the day, I mean, as much as it is easy now to denounce R. Kelly because he's he's not as relevant as he used to be. I feel like we haven't really learned a lot of these lessons. I mean, certainly social media does make pulling this stuff off harder because, you know, secrets tend to leak, screenshots are taken and sent out and, and spread like wildfire. Uh, allegations move very, very quickly. 
uh, much faster than sometimes the facts do if there are uh, facts counter to what the allegations are. But still, that hasn't changed the fact that there are artists out there these days using their clout, using their popularity, using their fame to uh, essentially put weaker people in a position where they are likely to be sexually abused or taken advantage of. And, and that moves across genres. And still to this day, you have tons of fans who come out and say, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It happened years ago. There's no reason to believe this person. Oh, here's this made up crap that's uh, counter to what they said. So everything's okay. Everything's fine. I'm going to make any excuse that I can to totally ignore this mounting pile of evidence that this person who I'm defending is a total scumbag. Yeah, unfortunately, there are still a lot of people like that. <laughs> and uh, I feel like maybe it could possibly bring us closer to um, a societal realization if somebody who is on the level of influence of a Jay-Z uh, was to speak out about potentially regretting working with a known abuser uh, of teenage girls. Certainly, Jay-Z wasn't the only person turning a blind eye to this shit. I don't think Jay-Z... Um, has any more responsibility in any of this than some of the people behind the scenes working for R. Kelly did, uh, who were actually kind of helping a lot of this abuse happen. Uh, they, I think, uh, have a heavier cross to bear. Guys like Chance the Rapper uh, have not been shy about just being like, yeah, you know, the R. Kelly song, it was a bad move. I shouldn't have done it. Nobody's canceled Chance the Rapper's fans still love him. And, uh, you know, he's, he's going to have a long career ahead of him. Uh, and a lot of great records, most likely. At this point, Jay-Z, what does he really have to lose? You know, he's uh, heading toward the twilight years of his career. He's made so much money. He's made so many connections. What is the harm at this point of just saying, you know what? It was a fuck up. I shouldn't have done it. Now that I'm older and I have a wife and I have a kid and I have hindsight and I sort of understand the dangers of this behavior and who it hurts and the effects that it could potentially have and how society should be better than this, uh, this is not okay. And we should not continue to look the other way when shit like this happens. I think a message like that, I think coming out and saying that could have a positive impact. You know, again, this isn't about attacking Jay-Z or shaming Jay-Z, but for somebody who has, in an artistic sense, held hands with the guy during <laughs> some of the worst moments uh, for R. Kelly socially, okay, as far as his public image, uh, I think it would be great to hear his point of view on this, and I will leave it at that. Thank all of you for listening to this latest episode of the Needle Drop podcast. This one, like everyone, is assembled by my dude Jonah who does a great job of putting these together nicely and cleanly week in and week out. You can hit us up on social media, twitter.com slash the needle drop and a Fantano on Instagram. Don't miss a single piece of content that we drop every day at the needle drop.com youtube.com slash the needle drop and youtube.com slash Fantano. Remember, again, whatever platform you're listening to this on, give us a like, give us a rating, give us a positive review, and uh, we will see you guys in the next one. You're the best. You're the best. You're the best. Forever. Mm -hmm.